When a patient comes into the hospital with stroke symptoms, the hospital will give that patient a CAT scan, which is a three-dimensional imaging of the patient's brain. The CAT scan needs to be examined by a radiologist, and the radiologist will decide whether to refer the patient to an interventionist, which is a surgeon who can perform an operation to lower the risk of long-term damage to the patient's brain function. After getting the CAT scan, the patient might wait for hours before a radiologist has a chance to look at the scan. In that period of time, the patient's brain function might be rapidly degrading. To speed up this workflow, a company called Viz.ai built a machine learning model that can recognize whether a patient is at risk of stroke consequences or not. Many people have predicted that radiologists will be automated by machine learning in the coming years. This episode presents a much more realistic perspective. First of all, we don't have nearly enough radiologists, so if we can create automated radiologists, that would be a very good thing. Second of all, even if this workflow has a cutting-edge machine learning radiologist in the loop, you still need the human radiologist in the loop. David Golan is the CTO at Viz.ai, and in today's show, he explains why he is working on a system for automated stroke identification and the engineering challenges in building that system. It's a great show about machine learning and healthcare. Before we get to the show, I want to announce that we're hiring. We are hiring writers and researchers and a videographer. And you can find these positions along with other jobs at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs. Some of these are part-time jobs, some are full-time. If you are hiring, you can also post your jobs on our job board. It's easy and it's free. Just go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs and see how you can post a job. David Golan, you are the CTO at Viz.ai. Thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. Your company identifies stroke victims, and it does that by looking at CT scans. What is a stroke? So there are two types of stroke. There's hemorrhagic stroke and an ischemic stroke. Hemorrhagic stroke is when a blood vessel in the brain erupts. Essentially, the patient is bleeding into their brain. And an ischemic stroke is when a clot is dislodged from somewhere in the body. It can be from the heart or from the carotid. It goes upstream with the, with the blood until it gets stuck in a vessel that's too small for, for the clot to... In both cases, the result is that there's a part of the brain that doesn't get the supply of blood and oxygen that it needs. As a result, begins dying quite rapidly. Ischemic strokes are more common. They make up to 90% of stroke patients. And that's the main focus of us at Viz AI. When a patient has a stroke, they're probably not at a hospital when the stroke happens. And so the response can be not great. How does the patient typically respond to a stroke? So it really depends on the severity of the stroke. A stroke is, is quite an alarming experience. A severe stroke could manifest as a you know, one-sided weakness, Loss of speech sometimes, some confusion, loss of words. Patients can lose consciousness, but it can also be, you know, dizziness or headache or something relatively mild. In some cases, patients don't realize they're undergoing stroke. In some cases, their brain is, is sustaining so much damage that even though the damage is quite severe, they're not realizing it and it's up to the people around them to spot it and, and you know, call 911. Sometimes it happens during sleep and, of course, then... You know, you notice it only when you wake up. 
So yeah, it, it can take some time, but once spotted, uh, people should get to the nearest hospital as soon as possible. When they get into the hospital, the patient will get a CT scan. That's a scan that, well, it does an imaging of the brain. Explain what a CT scan does. So a CT scanner is like a you know, futuristic X-ray. X-ray takes, a, you put a patient in front of a, essentially a camera that takes a picture of them and the X-rays, they go through the body so you can see what's inside. But an X-ray provides you with a 2D image. So you can imagine you're sort of getting a flat image of, of what's inside of you. A CT scanner is a sophisticated uh, version of that where you take a series of X-rays and sort of get cuts through the body and you can reconstruct those into a 3D image. So you get a full picture of what's going on inside. And specifically in the case of stroke, you get a full picture of what's going on inside the brain. Is a CT scan a single image or is it a video? So it's neither. It's a sequence of images, but they're not taken over time. So it's not like a video in the sense of a 2D image and the time axis. It's actually a, a series of 2D images that compose a 3D image of the body. Okay, but it all represents the same timestamp? Typically, yes. It, it depends on the technology. The advanced scanners today, they acquire most of the slices. Most of those images are called slices almost instantaneously. Older scanners would have taken longer and would have taken one by one or four after four. Uh, but nowadays, advanced tech is, the, the scans are done very, very fast in a few seconds. Okay. So the CT scan gets created, and then in traditional medicine, the radiologist needs to look at the CT scan. And so there can be a long waiting time in that time frame because maybe the stroke happens in the middle of the night, person comes into the hospital at 3 a.m., and there's only one radiologist on staff, they're already too busy, they're looking at all these different patients, and this new stroke victim has to wait an extra hour, or two hours, or five hours to get a radiologist to look at what's going on. Why is that problematic? Yeah, so when a patient is undergoing a stroke, the brain cells die at a very, very rapid pace. We're talking about like, the number is two million neurons die every minute. And you know that number doesn't really mean anything if you don't know how many neurons there are in the brain. But some other statistics are quite astounding. So one sentence that people like to use is, save a minute, save a week. So every minute saved in time to treatment actually gives the patient another week of healthy life. People talk about 15 minutes translating into 4% increase in the probability of a long, lifelong disability. Um, so it's really, really about those minutes and counting those minutes that can translate into very meaningful changes in patient outcomes. And then that patient walks into the hospital, and like you said, it can be in the middle of the night, and it can be a smaller hospital. It can be a very busy time where they come in at the exact same time that a car accident came in, and there's one ED doctor is trying to you know, juggle all those patients, and there's one radiologist is trying to juggle all those patients. But actually, in the case of stroke, there's something considerably more dramatic. Starting in 2015, there's an approved treatment for stroke, for ischemic stroke, that's really um, making a huge difference for patients. And that treatment is mechanical thrombectomy, which is, you know, from my perspective, nothing short of magic. So mechanical thrombectomy is the act of, through a small puncture in the groin, an interventionalist, who's a specially trained physician, 
can essentially take a wire and send it all the way to the patient's brain and retrieve the clot, essentially removing it from the patient's brain, thus renewing the, the flow of blood. And this treatment is so effective that in 2015, five clinical trials were stopped halfway through because the effect size was so huge that they determined it was immoral to deny the treatment from the control group. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah, that was a big moment in stroke care in 2015. It's called mechanical thrombectomy? Is that what you said? Yes. So mechanical thrombectomy, this is a minimally invasive, well, maybe not minimally invasive, but it sounds like a fairly low risk. Is it low risk or me- it's medium considered risk? It's fairly low risk. If you talk to some doctors, they, they would say they would you know, operate on a 96-year-old patient without thinking twice. There's always risk in, in, in this always type risk. of thing. Relatively minimally invasive. You know, people undergo you know, interventions in the heart. A cardiologist, too, a lot, many people undergo them. And they're considered fairly standard uh, nowadays. So, always uh, risk. So obviously, if you walk into a hospital and you get your CT scan, you don't want to just have a, a mechanical thrombectomy while you're waiting for the radiologist to come look at your your stroke. You do want to at least have the radiologist look at your stroke at, or look at your, your CT scan and see how severe your symptoms are and whether you're having a stroke or whether it's something else along the differential diagnostic. But the point is that if you can get the stroke identified, the severity of the stroke identified, and it warrants a mechanical thrombectomy, the point is that we have a very high expected value treatment that we can apply to you as a patient. Exactly. So there's a re- really a, a golden opportunity for, for the stroke patient if they are identified on time and identified as a patient who is eligible for a mechanical thrombectomy, there's literally a magic wand that the interventionalist can wave and remove that clot from their brain and generate huge benefits for the patient. Now, the biggest issue with this is, first of all, most hospitals don't have uh, neurointerventionalist units. So they don't have the equipment and they don't have the personnel. Uh, those are typically concentrated in the main hospitals, uh, also known as hubs or comprehensive stroke centers. So you're in one hospital, you're being treated by the team there, but actually the person who needs to know about this case and really make the clinical decision is elsewhere, is in a different hospital altogether. And then, I mean, we've all been to hospitals, you know, you know the doctors are doing their best, but sometimes there are inefficiencies in the system. So those doctors are trying to figure out what's going on with the patient and whether they're eligible for, for a thrombectomy, they would at some point try to contact the other hospital, consult with them, somehow transfer the images so they can also take a look on the other side. The interventionist then needs to decide whether they want to go in and try to retrieve the clot. And then the patient would be transferred to that hospital and be and operated on. So it's a very, very complex logistical effort well, a lot of communication needs to go on and all decisions need to be made by many, many people and not all of these people in the same place and not all of these people are notified when this patient comes into the hospital. And in the meantime, every minute is a week. So exactly, if you can save any 
piece of time along this series of uh, logistical time transactions, then if this is, can be a potential boon. This can be the, the difference between uh, very severely negative outcomes and severely positive outcomes. And if there's nothing wrong with the patient or if it's something that is, is not a stroke and it's just maybe the patient's dehydrated or something like that, then if we can just get the patient out of the hospital as quickly as possible, that would be an added benefit as well. Not to bury the lead, this brings us to, to viz.ai, what you're doing. So what you are targeting is when the CT scan gets created, instead of handing it off to a radiologist, which may take three or four hours, you just send it to the cloud and your software analyzes the CT scan. Explain what you can detect by running the CT scan through the algorithms that you've developed at viz.ai. Sure. So at Vista.ai, what we do is identify, we get all the scans from the city scanners to the cloud, like you said, and the scans are analyzed by our deep learning engine. And we are identifying those subset of patients that have an ischemic stroke of a subtype called a large vessel occlusion. So a large vessel meaning you can actually do a mechanical thrombectomy on them. So we identify those patients that can benefit from this magic treatment. And what we do is alert the interventionalists, the decision makers who really need to know about those specific patients and can help them and can provide them this life-saving treatment, we notify them on those cases. And they, they have an app, and the app uh, rings very loudly to attract their attention. And they can view the scans and patient information on the app to verify our finding and act on it. And this is done within minutes of the scan, while typically they would be notified way, way, way later. And one thing that's really important to stress out is that we're not doing this instead uh, of the radiologist reading the scan. Radiologists, they're not just looking at one thing. We're doing one thing, identifying those patients. They're looking at a bunch of other things. If, for example, there's evidence of cancer in the scan, the radiologist would pick that up. So we're not replacing them. The patient would still be, the scan would still be read by the radiologist in the hospital treated according to the standard of care. But we've identified that there's a subset of patients that could really benefit from expedited care. So if you look at that ER room that's packed with so many people, one of them can really benefit if we grab the attention of the right doctor at the right time. So that's that's our mission at VIS, getting the right doctor to the right patient at the right time out of you know all that crowd that, that's, that's there in the hospital and get them the treatment that they need we've been able to show really high accuracies and, and reduction in time. The workflow that we discussed before where patient comes in, patient gets CT scan, waits for the radiologist to look at the CT scan. The difference between that workflow and the workflow we're describing with Viz is patient gets the CT scan, Viz processes the CT scan. If Viz notices something that is quite alarming, you can basically say, oh, okay, we need radiologists right now. There's something severely wrong, and we really need to alert you and, and get you get your attention. Is that right? Yes. So we, just a minor comment is that we wouldn't alert the radiologist. We would actually alert the interventionalist, the doctor, specialist doctor is going oh, to so perform. Oh, you, you would skip doctor. the radiologist in this scenario. Yeah. yeah. So in that case, because at, for those specific cases, for those patients, at the end of the day, the interventionalist is going to look at the scans, look at the patients, and make a decision. So why wait? Why pass through 
you know, first a radiologist and a neurologist, and then they need to get a doctor in the other hospital, call them, send them the images. Why let this chain of event go and lose time for the patient where we can identify those specific patients that have a lot of benefit and, you know, send the information directly to the interventionalist's pocket? Got it. Okay. So I think we understand at this point the value of this solution and how it improves the stroke triage system. So this sets us up to actually get into the engineering around this problem. So you need to be able to train an algorithm to look at three-dimensional brain scans and identify, is this a high-risk stroke victim or not? Where did you get the initial training data for this problem? You know, data is always a hard problem, and especially in healthcare. Healthcare institutes are very protective about your data, for rightfully so. You know, patient health information is sensitive, sensitive, and you want to protect uh, patient privacy. Our original data sets came from academic collaborations, from uh, researchers who bought into our vision, were excited about the opportunity just as we were, and could literally you know, imagine a world where they get alerted and we're living this problem day to day. So that's one venue. The other venue was partnerships outside of the U.S. with radiology companies, hospitals, research organizations that were able to provide us with, with the right kind of data. And how much data do you need to build an accurate model here? So that's a good question. The amount of images that we ended up using is... I think in the hundreds of thousands. Uh, I don't remember the exact number. Uh, but a lot of effort went into making deep learning work with a relatively modest amount of data. A lot of effort went into you know, developing methods for data augmentation, for example, where you use existing data to artificially generate additional data points and making, making everything work. We've designed special deep learning architectures that were designed with uh, the constraints in mind and various ways. You know, deep, deep learning is, is some, often viewed as this sort of black box where you throw in a lot of data and it provides wonderful solutions, which is quite often accurate. However, when you have uh, not huge amounts of data, you some, sometimes need to help, help the network uh, learn. So we develop various ways to sort of in, inject domain knowledge expertise into the learning process. This data set, you needed to build a model to train the algorithm on that data set. Describe the training process. What was your sequence of steps to building this machine learning model and training it? So, first of all, you know, a CT scan is, is a big piece of data. It's actually... You know, each slice is 512 by 512, and then you have a few hundred slices that you need to work with. Uh, so that, that's a lot of data. So, for example, one thing is that you don't throw all that into a network. Uh, one, one thing you do, for example, is focus on regions. We've, for example, identified the head. <laughs> CT scan can start from the chest and go, go all the way to the top of the head, and the brain is just a small part of that. So, for example, you can sort of crop out the head out of the scan. Then you sort of define the output that you want. That typically involves annotation on various levels. There's a high-level annotation saying, you know, this scan is normal, this scan is abnormal, and there's lower-level annotation, so you can annotate things on the pixel level. 
So once you have all the data ready, you have your inputs, you have your outputs, and you start playing with your deep learning architectures, trying to get something that works. How do you get those annotations done? Do you need specialists to label the data? So we have a, a small operation of, of annotation, definitely. So some things require specialists. Some things can be done by more junior doctors, and some things can be done by a layman. So we have, we have an annotation platform, and we have annotators of various degrees of expertise, and we leverage them for different tasks, depending on the difficulty and level of expertise required for the task. So basically, for example, we define something that needs to be annotated. And just, just to give an example, so we'll have something to sort of run with. Say we want to identify you know, the brain. So we could have someone segment the brain on many, many slices. And that's not a very hard task. That's doable with minimal training by people with no specific medical training. So that would be an easy task that you can send out to minimally trained individuals. But if you want to identify, you know, a small hemorrhage or a small abnormality in the brain, that really requires the eye of a specialist. So that task would go out to specialists who can log on to the platform when they have some time and annotate a few scans. To be clear here, you had to build your own annotation platform. You couldn't outsource this to somebody like Scale API or some Crowdflower or something like that? So we did start by playing with uh, and trying to work with various platform, existing platforms. They were lacking some features that were very, very specific to our context. So some examples are the fact that we need uh, 3D data. So we need the ability to scroll through as if it were a video. Another thing is that CT data is not uh, standard images. So, for example, images are typically either 8-bit if they're grayscale or you have 24 bits if you're RGB. CT scan, every pixel is a 12-bit grayscale. And this human eye can't really perceive a 12-bit scale. So what radiologists do is they apply a trick called windowing where you essentially zoom in on a sub-range of this you know, 12-bit scale and focus on the subtleties in that scan. And this is a dynamic process. As they read through the scan, they play with this window to identify, for example, the edges of a lesion or where, where something starts and something stops. And this interactive nature, it, it just wasn't available uh, in any existing platform. Another thing was, that was really important to us is to build in, for example, a hierarchy into the annotation tasks. So, for example, we were working with people from doctors from many parts of the world, and we wanted to have, for example, a unified lexicon. So our platform supports sort of a hierarchy where you can define is the scan, you can define a hierarchy of questions and tasks that they need to answer. So for example, first question is, is the scan normal or not? If the answer is yes, well, maybe there's nothing more to do. But if the answer is no, then you can ask, well, what type of abnormality? And then the annotation task can depend on the type of abnormality. So you really, you know, we've organized this in a very, very fixed manner. And then when different people annotate different things, they all use the same lexicon. And it's very easy to put all the data on the same frame of reference, so to speak. So, so yes, we've ended up building our own platform. Which was it, it was it was a fun experience, I gotta tell you. I want to take a step back here because this domain specific 
data labeling sector of the computer science economy seems to be something that is really developing. So I did a show with Scale API a while ago. And are you familiar with Scale? Do you know what that company does? Actually, I'm not. Okay. It's a pretty interesting company. It's kind of like upmarket Mechanical Turk sort of thing. So they have, it's basically a Mechanical Turk API. So you can make an API call to get a fi- uh, an audio file transcribed or to get a picture labeled by a human that has been vetted. So it's like a very high quality API for Mechanical Turk style stuff. You might be able to make use of it somewhere in your pipeline, but they recently built a set of APIs around labeling self-driving car data. So, you know, and they built, they had to build an entire platform around this. So, you know, you get a three-dimensional image from a self-driving car and there's not a good algorithm for noticing, at least, you know, publicly available, maybe somewhere at Waymo, but for doing labeling of, you know, the setting within, you know, can you label a pedestrian? Can you label, you know, a strange circumstance in, Maybe it's a, a road structure that, that is unique, like a roundabout or something like that that's confusing. Because there's so many edge cases, they had to build their own platform for how people can like manipulate an image, a three-dimensional image, and create labelings within that image. It sounds very similar to what you're doing at Viz, where you had to build... It's, it's not this straightforward thing of, oh, we just had to bring in the humans and get them to label stuff. It's like we actually had to give them an interface for the labeling platform. Are there a lot of domains where this kind of custom data labeling platform is going to need to be built within whatever machine learning powered domain we're talking about? So honestly, I think every company I know of in the medical imaging domain is supporting its own annotation platform. Wow. Um, That's bizarre. Yes, because you know every everyone is a snowflake. Now here you have you need some semi-automatic tools, and here you need uh, you know something specific for CT. And someone is doing you know just a few really cool companies in doing uh, pathology. And then you have six GB images, like huge, huge images, very high resolution, and that's just not supported by standard platforms. So everybody is running into their own problems, and so far. You know, back then when we started talking about this, we were interacting with a few companies about, uh, you know, doing things like like you mentioned. But back then, uh, we couldn't find any platform that was suitable for us. Uh, so we ended up writing our own. And it's, now it's already integrated in all our data pipelines and everything is working very well. So I don't know if we would uh, jump off and switch to something else. Of course. But if I were to start a company now, there's a good chance that something something better is available. Yeah. Interesting. You got this training process, you've got your data labeled, and then you need to put it through an algorithm to basically now have your since you have your labeled data set and you have I guess at some point this data is getting labeled as stroke or not stroke, right? So you have the lower level pieces of data that you're labeling about the image. And then you have the yes or no case, right? The yes or no, we should escalate this to the interventionist versus not escalate it to the interventionist. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So once you have those set of labels, what do you do? I mean, remind us, 
you know the the process of you know you have to train the data you have to maintain some test data set give us an overview of this process as it applies to the the stroke identification problem okay so you, you lucked out and you got uh, you know big data set shared with you uh, typically what we do first step like like you said is to divide this into training test data and the test data is kept aside and keeping it uh, away from the hands of the algorithms team uh, so they don't they don't get a chance to peek into it. Now, just assume you've finished the process of annotation, you have your inputs and outputs, and you start training models. And you can you can start training models, or you can start working on pipelines. So a pipeline would be a sequence of steps uh, versus you know a black box algorithm that that's you know scan as input, uh, label as output. We mix and match according to the context. So. You know, one thing I mentioned earlier is this idea of, for example, cropping out the head out of the scan, which is very, very simple, but actually very powerful because then you've reduced the amount of data needed to be processed by, you know, orders of magnitude. So basically you iterate on that, you investigate the successes and failures and try to figure out what you've done well and what you've done wrong and how you can improve until you get to a point where you have something that's sort of working. Uh, and, and you're happy with the performance, and you have a good feeling about it. At that point, you would go to to your test set and and get like an, a more objective quantification of your performance. And then once you've hit the, the target, which is a level of accuracy that we've decided that is reasonable for this product to be clinically useful. Then you can go to the next step, which is getting this cleared by the FDA. <laughs> right. Okay. So we'll get there in a second. Just to put a finer point on what you said, you've got these different parameters of the data set, or every piece of data in the data set has different parameters associated with it. And your process of iteration is going to be changing the weights of those parameters and being able to determine which of those parameters are most highly correlated with the the stroke victims that should be sent off to an interventionist. And as you are modifying those weights, your model is getting better and better at identifying which are the parameters that matter. And you're going to be doing that on the training data for a long period of time until you have a set of weights on those parameters for the training data that works for the training data. And it seems to be like, okay, every time we put, now every time we put the training data through this algorithm, based on the weights that we've adapted for these parameters, we tend to get a really high accuracy of, a really high precision of, of how the training set is being labeled as accurately or inaccurately. So now let's put it on the test data set. And if the test data set also is being accurately measured, that means that you have not overfitted your model to the training data. And that means that it's probably good enough to move on to the next step, which is actually like, you know, putting this training, this model into some bigger application. Do I understand it correctly? That's exactly right. So, so you go through a process of, of training, which is, you know, one part like you mentioned, updating weights, using deep learning uh, infrastructures like TensorFlow to optimize a deep learning model. So that's one part. The other part is more 
adding, throwing in some domain expertise. So from simple things like here is a head to more complex things like, you know, sometimes some people have uh, metal in the brain, metal implants, and that's very, very disruptive uh, to the CT scan. So we found out, for example, that removing those cases uh, or including those cases really makes the life of the network hard because it's an event that's very rare unexpected and just metal on a CT scan is, is like this shiny white star. It's a very dramatic thing. So for example, we came up with a, a simple heuristic that identifies those scans and sets them aside. So it's a combination of like knowledge driven heuristics with really hardcore deep learning, which is like you described very well, you know, iteratively improving those weights until you get the results accurate enough. How do you fit in those outlier events to building a good model? Like when somebody has metal in their brain, how do you adapt to that? So th- that's a terrific question, and it's, it's a very interesting product question. So what does this mean? Can we have a product that doesn't work, for example, or when there's metal in the brain? And this specific example was an easy decision because metal in the brain often occurs when a person had an aneurysm and the aneurysm was clipped. So there's literally a metal clip inside that person's brain. And that's just so disruptive to the image that even experts can often, can, often can't make sense of it. So in that case, we would not analyze that scan and we would alert the physician, notify them that there is a scan that we couldn't process. And another example is that if someone had a major surgery recently, and one thing that's common in the context of stroke is a removal of a piece of the skull. So if a major piece of the skull was removed and there's a lot of deformation, then sometimes that can throw you off as well. And again, because this is this is actually a very special case, it's not sort of a case where you're expected to, to operate well. So maybe it's okay to say to say to the doctor, hey, there's this scan here. I'm not sure I know how to deal with it. Other examples are you know, less technical. For example, scans of children. So the brain of a child, the head of the child look very, very different. And we just, at that point, we just didn't have a lot of that data in our data set. And we just felt uncomfortable that we would, you know, we just said we, we can't run accurately. We can't, we're not comfortable with running as uh, this device, this algorithm on scans that we didn't have enough data from. So our labeling, this is, this is like regulatory part, but the label of the device, it's a medical device, so it has a label and instructions, clearly states that it shouldn't be used on patients that are children. And if the metadata of the scan indicates that it's a person under the age of, I think, 18, I'm not sure the exact age, you know, we would refuse to analyze it. I think we have tackled the machine learning part well enough at this point. And I'd like to zoom out to the broader engineering setup at Viz. If I'm not mistaken, this is really the hardest engineering problem. What we just discussed is the hardest engineering problem in your organization. The other hard problems are things around FDA approval, some subjective decisions around, for example, should we skip people with metal in their brain, probably some other subjective product development questions. But as far as engineering, is there anything else that's particularly hard, like questions around the platform, the scheduling system for 
spinning up the the machine learning infrastructure? What else is difficult in your engineering organization? Okay, so first of all, I, I would like to say that I really don't think that the algorithm part is the hardest part. Okay. What I'd like to say is that we have the technology side. We're still resting on three legs. There's the algorithm, there's the infrastructure, and there's the app. And really, I don't think any one of them is is harder or more important than the others. And specifically, so let me walk you through you know, some of the difficulties here. So first of all, a CT scan is a lot of data. It can be you know several hundred megabytes to a few gigabytes. And you need to get it from the hospital to the cloud. And you need data infrastructure to move the data around in ways that you know, are efficient because every minute counts. So that's a major engineering challenge. Another thing is that you know, literally when you count minutes and seconds, you need everything to run very, very smoothly. And on top of that, you need very high redundancy. So we're trying to design a system in the cloud that's you know, very fast, very robust, that we can guarantee to our customers that you know, it, it would work when they need it. That means I think, you know, high, high availability standards, uh, you know, cutting edge, and so on. Another aspect is cybersecurity. So because we're in the healthcare business, there's a big emphasis on cybersecurity and everything needs to be done in a very, very secure manner, adapting to standard of care practices, very detailed and very elaborate architecture for a cloud environment, making sure that you know access is very well controlled and we comply with the various standards. So that's actually a very big challenge as a small startup with a small team operating under you know, various standards such as the you know, ISO 27K, cybersecurity efforts, HIPAA compliance, high trust, you know, Europe now has GDPR. All that are things that you need to support uh, with a small team of you know, a you know, single digit number of engineers. So, so that's very hard. And the third part is the mobile app. And again, I think it's, it's a very complex and interesting mobile app because we actually send all this data. We send the scan to the physician. It's, it's just a huge piece of data. It needs to get to them quickly. And there's anything from you know, implementation decisions to be made to proprietary compression algorithms to, to get it. And on top of that, what we really want, I'm sure you've been around hospitals, the IT infrastructure in hospitals is sometimes, I think, kind of, of old. And we see this as an actual opportunity to provide a novel platform to the doctors that's really delightful. And, you know, they, they all have smartphones, so they're used to you know, a delightful experience. And then they walk into the hospital and they're working on a computer that's running Windows XP. So really want to provide them with you know, tools to make their life easier. And that's another challenge. So it's an engineering slash design slash UX challenge. But it's also a very interesting challenge of how we make this an app that they would want to use for the other patients as well, because it's so much fun for them to use. I have heard from people who have tried to build products for healthcare, and they just end up in this horrible situation where it's not anybody's particular fault. It's just the collision between... Silicon Valley um, flavored product development and the process of getting something approved by the FDA or just 
getting somebody within a healthcare organization to kind of like take a risk on you and your product, those two things do not collide very well. Can you talk about how you managed to get people using this thing? Like what was the process of, for anybody out there that's listening that is trying to get a product approved by a hospital or to get a product trialed by a hospital or a medical organization, what advice do you have? Okay, so that, that's a really, really good question. I think healthcare is does present some complexities. At least in that case, maybe some lessons from you know general B2B can, can be transferred. But generally, you want to do something. You want a solution that helps three people in the organization. The patient, obviously. The doctor, because the, that doctor is going to be your champion. B2B sales, you always identify the champion that's going to push your product through the system. And then you have the administrator of the hospital or the CFO or someone who, you know, gets these requests from many, many doctors within the organization and they need to make a decision on the budget. So they need to understand or see something in it for them in the bottom line or in the top line or both. So for us at VZI, I think we've the, the case for stroke is very, very appealing. First of all, for the patient. I think that's obvious from all, all we discussed. Every minute counts. Getting there faster, that's you know wonderful for the patients. The doctors, at least our feeling was that they, they've bought in quickly. This is, you know, more than once I had a conversation with a, an interventionist in, in a conference and said, yeah, this is what I need. This is what I want. This would make my life much, much better. So... You know, if, if you don't have that kind of support, you would have a hard time if you don't have a champion. The last part, I think, is the hardest because often, and I, I know many stories, I have friends in, in companies, like you mentioned, who've built great products that could save lives or improve, you know, patients stay in the hospital or reduce, you know, time, do all sorts of good things for the patients, but they are, there's no strong financial incentive for using them. And that's, that's really the tricky part. So the case for stroke is very appealing financially also. First of all, stroke is, you know, in the top five killers in the Western world. I think in the U.S. is number four or five. But it's the number one in healthcare spend. And that's because when someone is having a stroke and it's not treated, they can remain handicapped for the rest of their lives. They would need assisted living. They're losing income. Their family is losing income. The insurance is paying for that. That's just a lot of money. So, you know, there's just big incentives there. That's actually very important that the system would would have something to benefit financially from using the device. From a product development point of view, what I heard you say there that stood out to me was there's this moment that you can set up for at a conference, for example, where you're at a conference, maybe you have a booth set up, and you can demo to doctors here is what you do to use our software. Here is how it saves you time. Any questions? Yes. Right? Like you need that demo moment. You need the wow moment where somebody can say, this is so concrete to me. This is not like, you know, you've given me, here's a new CRM platform for your patients, right? Where it's like, here's a tool you can use to change your entire workflow within the hospital. That is not how you convince somebody to start using your software in healthcare? No, no, not at all. Not at all. You need to get that aha moment where you talk to them, you talk to them about their institution, you talk to them about the hospitals that they're getting patient referrals from, 
you ask them, you know, how long does it take? Uh, do you have any issues? Do they always call you within the 30 minutes that you're required to by the guidelines? And then they say no. And then it's like, well, how would you feel if you get an alert on every positive case? And that's that wow moment where they typically realize there's, there's a very interesting value prop here for them and for the patients. Another thing, if, if you're talking to administrators, and that's actually another big thing in stroke, is guidelines. So because, because stroke is such a big burden on the healthcare system financially, hospitals are required to abide by certain guidelines on how fast they treat those patients. And this goes back to the offering for the administrators of the hospital, because what you're offering, what we're offering them is we can help you improve your statistics and retain your status as a high-performing stroke center. So that's also very appealing. We also had a show with a company called HeartFlow. Are you you're familiar with HeartFlow? Yes. Yeah, they're awesome. Okay. Yeah. So they sound it, it sounds remarkably similar to what you do in the sense that they look at CT scans of hearts and they make decisions around who should get a stint in their heart or not. How does that problem domain compare to the stroke identification problem set? So I'm familiar with them, with their product. I don't know their technology very intimately. I think these are slightly different problems. So with heart flow, to the best of my understanding, and again, I apologize if I'm misrepresenting, you're essentially acquiring a dynamic scan where dynamic scan is acquired over time. So we would essentially scan the heart again and again and again while injecting uh, contrast. So the contrast uh, you know, shows up on the scan and you can see the veins and, the, and the, the arteries and you can see the progression and you can use that to sort of make a 4D model, you know, a hydrodynamic model of the, vessels, of, of the vessels around the heart and address those important clinical questions that heart flow are addressing. So for example, are the, you know, pressures, what are they, do they justify a stent or not and, and all that. So that's you know, very, very interesting. In our case, there's, and their decision is, it's not about time, it's about they're there and they need to make a clinical decision, but they want to diagnose the patient accurately and treat them. Our case, the focus is on, it's, it's essentially a yes-no question. Should we take this person for a mechanical thrombectomy or not? And that, person, and that question needs to be answered as fast as possible. So that's actually something that really separates, I think, this AI from many other companies in the medical imaging domain, everybody are doing amazing things, really. I think there's like so many interesting and great companies. But we're operating at a very, very high pace, right? We need to give the answer now. Uh, there's, there's no waiting. You know, right now, for example, a woman does a mammography scan. She gets an answer within two or three weeks. And that's fine, right? And if a startup is working on, on better breast cancer detection... That's really a wonderful cause that's going to save many, many women. But there's no time factor there. So it's perfectly fine for your engineering organization to be, for example, skewed towards a very strong algorithm stem and some engineering wrapping around it that handles you know, moving the data around. In our case, that's why I said we have those three legs that we stand on. It's getting everything to work and getting everything to work fast is just as important as getting the answer right. So that sort of differentiates us from, from many of the other players. Understood. And I know we're up against time here, so I want to ask you kind of in, in the same vein of the previous question around HeartFlow, the, this abstract market of we have 
a problem within the healthcare world that we can solve with machine learning and none of the individual problems within this, you know, whatever problem set we're talking about is particularly hard. We just need the data. We need somebody to build the machine learning model. We need somebody to build the back end and we need somebody to write the mobile apps and we need somebody to do the sale at the conference. So we need these different things. None of them are like that risky. We just need the right team. We need the right sequencing. We need the right project management. How many of these opportunities are there in healthcare? Like, is this something where people could just like sort of like get involved in healthcare, spend five months, find a problem and build a product? I think that's maybe slightly, slightly um, <laughs> making it, you know, exaggerated. Okay, exaggerated. I think it's some of the issues. Is if, if you define a problem and you say, I'm going after this, you know, do all the process you mentioned, but get the data, build the algorithm, build the infrastructure, build the app, you will get there. Honestly, I think the, one of the biggest challenges is this generating this value offering for the hospitals, for the patients, doctors, and administrators. That's very, very tricky. And you would need to iterate quite a bit on that. There are opportunities. I think we're seeing a wave of companies emerging with uh, you know, in- interesting value props for healthcare. But I've, I think we've also seen some companies who tried great talent and backed up by VCs and with funding and all that, and they didn't crack it because it's not just about building a technology that works. It's, work, it's building a product that works and is used and is loved and effective. And, you know, the best algorithm in the world is useless if it's not part of a one Lego brick in a product that's delivering value across the entire chain. Understood. David, I'm sure we could talk for a lot longer. And, you know, if, if you got another product in the future or some further announcement, as I'm sure you will have, Eventually, I'd love to have another conversation, something, you know, there's so much stuff that I, I didn't get to, but I really want to thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been great talking to you, and I'm inspired by what you're working on. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to speak. Wow.